Good evening and welcome to the Writer's Block. I'm your host, John Ronan, and as you know now, because we are in our 30th season, I interview poets about their craft, what they're accomplishing, what they're planning, what, they've, uh, what successes they've had in the past. It's a broader net than just poetry, however. We have on other brands of artists, sometimes novelists, sometimes short story writers, sometimes journalists. In addition, we have other kinds of varieties of artists, sculptors, musicians, actors. It's a very broad net that extends way past poetry. So if you have an idea for a guest who might be good for the writer's block, watch for our address at the end of the show. We'd be glad to get your suggestions. I also want to remind you that the Writer's Block and all the other original programming out of Studio 1623 is a result of cable access television. You don't get this valuable public service if you subscribe to DISH. So you stay away from those other <laughs> means of access to uh, uh, the television world. Stick with Cable and the Writer's Block and all of our other Cape Ann products. I'm very happy today to say this evening that we do have a writer. She is a journalist by the name of Naomi Shalit. We're going to talk about her background and also because it's such a general important topic today, journalism in general and its future. Naomi Shalit is originally from Southampton, Long Island where she lived for a while, but mostly grew up in New York City and Connecticut. She went to uh, undergraduate college at Princeton, where she married, married, excuse me, where she majored in this restful topic, religion and Near Eastern politics. She was also, while at Princeton, an editor at the Nassau Literary Review. She went west after Princeton, after a couple of years to get an advanced degree at Berkeley in California. And she stayed in California for a few years, writing, among other things, for Mother Jones. She couldn't stay away from the East Coast, however. She told me before the show she got homesick for the East, so she moved back East to Maine. A little different than, than Jersey and New York, and uh, lived in Maine from 1970, excuse me, 1994 to 2017, when she and her husband John Christie moved to Gloucester, and they now live in Gloucester, and she is still involved in journalism in Gloucester and in Boston. Naomi, thanks for being on the writer's block. Great to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you coming down. I don't know where to start because uh, journalism, as I just mentioned, is an important topic today and uh, it's getting more and more uh, important. Uh, I want to ask you what you think the fate of journalism is in the age of alleged fake news. Oh, goodness. Um, that's, that's well, a, yeah, thanks. How, how's, how's <laughs> that? a big enough question, John. Um, well, let's just establish something, which is democracy needs journalism. The citizens need to know what their government is doing. At its most basic level, that's what journalism does. It can also 
give you recipes for what you're going to cook for dinner tonight. It can tell you about places that you might want to travel. But its fundamental role since, since America was a country has been uh, to feed democracy, to provide citizens with information about what's going on in their government so they can hold government accountable. Well, that's the Washington Post <coughs> motto, but democracy dies in darkness. Yeah, it's a bit of a grim motto, but it's pointing out a real um, problem now, which is sometime uh, in the late 20th century, the highly um, lucrative business of journalism started to falter. And uh, you're talking about 20% um, you know, profit margins, even more at many papers especially when a lot of those papers, newspapers I'm talking about, but also TV stations, but largely newspapers, were, were uh, had monopolies, um, exemptions from, in fact, antitrust um, regulations. And so they could basically print money. They were the major place that a community's advertisers wanted to be found. And they also, uh, the majority of their money came from advertisers. Some of their money came from subscriptions as well. Um, with the internet, with the recession in the 80s, that model started to falter and it's almost failed by now. And what we're seeing across the country is communities are losing both their daily and, in, and weekly and in some cases daily newspapers. One just failed, I think it was either in Ohio or Pennsylvania, and leaving a community of hundreds of thousands of people without someone to report on their local government yeah. and schools and public health and you name it. So I, my husband, John Christie and I were um, part of a move about 12, 14 years ago to start up nonprofit journalism services to at least do the kind of in-depth reporting, investigative reporting about government that was no longer being done because the money just wasn't there to pay a reporter to go off for three months or six months or a year and not produce a story during that time. Yeah. Um, and with diminished staff, you just couldn't afford to do that. So we did this in Maine. We had a statewide yeah. organization. What, what was your organization? Um, this was called the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. Um, it had a website called um, pinetreewatch.org. Um, I think it may have changed now. It might be, I think it's still pinetreewatch.org. In any event, um, what we did was uh, we specialized in looking at not what government was doing well, but what government was doing wrong. And we got a few people unelected. We found a fair amount of corruption. We found laws that were accomplishing um, the opposite of what they were intended to do. We found systems like the bail system that were grossly unfair and were also um, not working well in, in one case, a man who was let out on bail on a domestic violence charge went out and killed his wife and kids. Um, so we, we sure. looked at what wasn't working, we wrote about it without fear, and sometimes things changed. That's a good segue because I have here a pamphlet, a book really that you wrote titled Single Parents in Poverty, The Crisis No One Will Name. I'm gonna hold this up. This is a very well written, well-researched profile of some of the decision makers and some of the single mothers and some of the single negligent fathers in Maine, interviewed and uh, often photographed by Naomi Shalit. And 
I don't know if this is available, but it's a very good example of the kind of research that that organization did and that you wrote about. Is this available? Uh, it's certainly available online. Um, and uh, and what, what was their website if, again? If somebody, the easier way to find it is to Google single parents in poverty and add my last name, S-C-H-A-L-I-T, and it'll come up. It was on our website, but it was also run. We shared our stories for free with any legitimate news organization so just in the state. Punch in this title yep. and your name, yep. Naomi Shalit, which the audience has seen on and off on our screen, yep. uh, and they'll, they'll bring it up. It. Okay. Yep. Yeah. This is the kind of research and the kind of journalism that defends democracy, protects democracy, because it's accurate and vetted and carefully done. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. I want to get back to Maine because it's on, uh, it's in our neighborhood. Yeah. But I want to ask. It used to belong to Massachusetts, actually. What? It used to belong to it, Massachusetts, it's true. right? It's true. Uh, tell us something. I want to go back a little bit. Tell us something about what you did when you wrote for Mother Jones. Well, can, I, can you think of a couple major stories that were successes for the magazine and for you? Yeah, I can't because what I did for Mother Jones was I wrote for them, but I didn't write stories for them. I wrote letters to rich people to ask them for money to help Mother oh, Jones. Oh, you were fundraising um, only. I was, yeah. Well, you so mentioned that, that before was, the yeah. show. I didn't know yeah. that that was... Yeah, all, so that's you know, what I did. I shouldn't say all you did. Yeah, no, that's money, all I did, but it was money, essential. Money, um, money yeah, is the fuel. Was, yeah. yeah, and uh, Mother Jones uh, was an early version of nonprofit journalism. Um, they had a nonprofit uh, designation largely at that time in the 80s because it got you lower postal rates. Um, eventually, it grew into the idea that most nonprofit journalism outlets have now which is they are performing a public service, and so they deserve that nonprofit status. So your organization was in Maine was not necessarily modeled on Mother Jones, but no. parallel, uh, parallel uh, source of income and structure. Yeah, foundations um, and people who supported us. And, and the part that was public service <clears throat> was not just providing these stories to the public, it was that we provided them to papers and radio stations and TV stations, whatever legitimate news organizations in Maine that wanted to run them. So you're a multi-talented uh, person with many hats. You were an English, uh, no, you were not an English, you were a religion and history or political science major in, as an undergrad, but you wrote and edited for a literary journal. So, and somewhere you learned something about fundraising. Did yeah. you take a minor in fundraising? Well, I, I did. When I first moved out to California, I actually, I've always had this interest in politics as well as writing. And so I worked for some political campaigns and a very large part of political campaigns is asking for money. Yeah. So I started there. Then I also, while I was starting to move over into journalism, worked um, with the ACLU in San Francisco. I was on the board of the San Francisco chapter, also did um, fundraising there. Then I, um, my, uh, in various aspects of my career, I would volunteer and help people write grant proposals. Um, for their nonprofits, and I was always helping friends uh, do that. And so by the time we got to founding the organization in Maine, um, John and I each had about eight different roles. Um, I even learned to wrangle code and HTML in order to make the, the website work. Um, and we both had to do fundraising, and you know, it's basically a simple thing, which is you make a good case for why you need the support, and then you ask people to give it to you. So that's what you did 
uh, for Mother Jones, uh -huh. and you brought that uh, skill to uh, Maine. Repeat the name of the organization that you and your husband, John Christie, were uh, among the founders of. Yes, it was um, the Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting, and the that's Maine still for its, its formal reporting. name, and it's a mouthful, and if we had it to do over again, we wouldn't have given it such a long name. The Maine Center for Public Interest Reporting. Which describes what it is. Good, yeah. good. So, so it was exhausting. We did it for eight years. Um, we were everything from chief cook to bottle washer. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing when, when you found an organization and you take, you do such edgy reporting as we did, which was really taking the powerful in Maine to task. Um, it wakes you up in the night. We had people leave our board because they got so mad at us because we wrote about their friends um, in not flattering ways, um, but all of them factual and confirmed. Um, we uh, took a lot of heat. Um, we had people come after us and, and, uh, and call up newspapers and say, that's just wrong. And the newspapers would say, wait a moment, and they'd come back to us and we'd give them all the um, facts. And so they'd, they'd keep it up on their sites and in their papers. So it was, it was a lot of pressure. It was the kind of reporting that Maine wasn't really used to, um, but it was also a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I would imagine because so much of Maine is rural, Maine is a rural state essentially, uh, that one would not be used to that kind of thing uh, that goes on in the, in the big cities because there has traditionally been some, some very good journalism in big newspapers. Yeah, the Maine had newspapers that were, oops, sorry, um, touching my microphone. Maine had, had some urban newspapers, but um, there wasn't the tradition really in Maine of, of uh, hard-nosed uh, kind of reporting that, as you say, the big urban um, papers would do. And there was a kind of coziness, I think, between the State House Press Corps and those who were in the State House. They Gee, liked I've them. never heard of that kind of yeah, thing before. Yeah, yeah, oh. they liked them. Um, they wouldn't bite the hand that fed them because yeah. quite often those hands did feed them. Yeah. And um, you know, one of the things that John said to me when he actually hired me to be an opinion page editor quite a few years before that at the two newspapers he was publisher of was, um, he said, we have no friends. That's what you just have to understand. We have no friends, because if you think you have friends, then you will pull your punches. And you can't do that as a journalist. You just have to be fearless. If you're a good journalist, unlike the wave of so-called fake journalism that's going on now, which is completely dependent on friendship and expresses nothing else but the friendships, yeah. it's becoming, in many instances, at least on the, on the uh, the hot media, television, uh, uh, nothing about that. Well, I think there's partisan journalism on both sides. So you've got Fox TV, you've also got MSNBC. And I think what I would say, and, and neither of those things is a good thing because they're not really telling you what you should know, they're telling you what you want to know. Well, the, the, I think they both have identical goals, and the identical goal is to sell ad time. So they're breathlessly... 98% of the time, breathlessly telling you about breaking gossip. Yeah. And, and that would include CNN as well. 
Oh um, yeah, all, all, the, all the political. Uh, yeah, I think political. the last time I, I was watching convention coverage, it said breaking news, convention starts. Well, that's not breaking news. You've <laughs> known for the last six months where the convention was gonna be and at what time it would be on television. Um, I think that people are used to the sort of adrenaline surge of that phrase, breaking news. But, um, you know, there's an old phrase in journalism. If your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. And I think viewers, you can blame all these partisan hucksters, um, masquerading as news, um, but you also need to blame yourself because the truth is they're successful because people watch them. So... Keep people angry and afraid. Yeah, I saw or keep not, people feeling good about the thing that they believe. And those people are stupid. I saw not too long ago in a movie a background image uh, that was making fun for about a split second of news. And an announcer was saying, otters get wet. <laughs> Imagine it's that. A, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect kind of Sky summer, is summary, blue at some point, line, right? Yeah, summary line of what... Uh, what much of that programming uh, presents. But you asked, you know, what's gonna happen to journalism? I I don't know, at this point, I think we're in a very perilous place, both um, in journalism and in democracy, um, which is fed by journalism. Uh, I think there are literally studies that have shown that when a local newspaper goes under and you do not have coverage, that people become more partisan. So the people who used to maybe split their ticket when they were voting, they have now found that those people will just vote more party line because they just don't know enough because they haven't heard about it in the newspaper. Well, they're getting information from hot media, which is much less uh, nuanced. Or they're not and, getting the information and at and all. And also they, they, uh, they don't have the slow ability to decide what to read and to think about. Right. Yeah, yeah. Tell me a couple of, now we showed one uh, title that you were involved with in Maine, Single Parents in Poverty. Tell me a couple of other projects that you were involved in there. And also, and then I want to get to what you're doing now in Boston, but a couple other projects that you can mention from Maine. There are examples of that kind of public interest journalism. So before I was at um, the center, before we started it, I um, worked, as I mentioned, for the papers that John published um, the uh, Kennebec Journal in the Morning Sentinel, Kennebec Journal in Augusta, Morning Sentinel in um, Waterville. They were both owned by the Seattle Times Company, a very fine paper and a very good Seattle. family. Seattle Times. Um, same ownership as the Portland Press Herald down in Portland. And uh, we did a series, I did a series. I got called one day by a legislator whom I knew because I'd been a statehouse reporter for a long time for public radio. Um, and other sources. In any event, I got a call from this legislator. He said, I want you to come to my district. I'm seeing something really strange going on right now. And what he was seeing was that food pantries in his very rural district in western Maine, over near Rangeley, were running out of food. This had not happened to them in anybody's memory. And so I went out on one winter day to spend the day with him in his truck going from food pantry to food pantry. Practically, it was a snowy, icy day. I still remember being terrified because he was such a crazy driver that we were gonna go off the road and I would end my life in a very noble way trying to find a story, but I'd still die too young. Anyway, that was the beginning of about a six-month project where um, I found 
both through talking to food pantries and um, to people who work with the poor and to schools where they were seeing kids come in without food. Oh, did that lead to this part? This is no, it's not, a different this one. This is not a pantry, no. but it is a food uh, Yeah, that is actually soup, a food soup, pantry, soup, too. Soup it's kitchen. a soup kitchen. In any event, I found um, through analyzing Department of Agriculture data that Maine had the fastest growing rate of hunger in the nation. We were losing the industrial jobs at the paper mills, um, uh, say, the shoe mills. Say that again. Maine had the, the fastest growing rate of hunger in the nation. And this is in the this 90s? This was in 2007. So a little over 10 years ago. Yeah, 12 years ago. And, and it was showing up in these various places in... Um, in the food pantries, in the churches, where people were going um, you know, after services to the minister and saying, can you help me out? In schools, where children were putting their heads down on the desks and falling asleep because they hadn't had breakfast. Um, in kids who were trying to get school lunch, but their parents couldn't pay for it. Um, in, old, in senior homes, where people came in who seemed to have Alzheimer's or dementia of some sort, but it turned out that they were eating almost all of their food out of cans. They were canned goods because they were cheap. And there's a certain kind of, there's a metal that you can get too much of in your brain that causes those symptoms. Once they were fed fresh vegetables, fresh meat, fresh food, their symptoms abated. Can you imagine that? So, um, so your, that, that project, yeah. that writing had some effect yeah, it on did. getting food pantries stuffed or maybe expanding the number of food pantries? Well, we, we actually always like to look at what are the policy um, solutions to a problem like this. And what we determined and what we wrote about in the series, in the paper, so this was a seven-day series, was the single thing that could diminish the rate of hunger in the state better than any other thing that you could do was to make... Um, free and reduced lunch available to all kids and free and reduced breakfast also available to all kids. Right now, at that point, it was um, given to a limited number of families who, who were under certain guidelines, financial guidelines, able to get it. But a lot and more a lot families of needed it. A lot of families needed it. They weren't getting it. So that ended up with the governor establishing a task force and Ooh. looking at the issue. Ooh, which, and it, which governor was that? This was Governor Baldacci. So it was two governors ago, um, prior to LePage. And it didn't happen that year. And in fact, there had been any number of attempts to expand those school lunch and school breakfast programs that had never happened. But eventually they did, a few years down the line. Um, yeah. And, and there was just more awareness means that um, more kids are going to so get So you put that on especially. the agenda. Yeah. Not only get something to do, do uh, done now, yeah. but in people's consciousness that yes. hunger is a problem. That's right. Even, even in the great state of Maine. Yeah, especially I, in the great state of Maine. I want to, we, we are showing underneath your name on the screen theconversation.com, which mm -hmm. is a website for the organization that you work for now. Yeah in Boston, and I want to make sure we're getting close to the end of the half hour, that you describe what you do for that company. Okay, so I used to be a writer and reporter, and now I'm an editor, which means I'm kind of a ghost writer. 
So our website, it's another nonprofit website, news service, that in fact does the same thing we did at Maine, but on a much larger scale, which is we share our content, our stories, with any legitimate news site that wants to um, publish them. They just have to say it's from the conversation and use the same headline and not change the story. But the people who write our stories, and I'm the politics editor, um, the people who write our stories are all academics. So you must have a university or college affiliation to write for us. And the idea is that scholars have access to lots of research, lots of facts, and in a world that's awash with fake news and way too much opinion, we can offer actual facts out of the academy, and my job is to work with these scholars both to commission stories from them, but also then once they write the stories, they have to be in a way that a newspaper would like to run them, uh, an sure. online news site would like to run them. So I help, many of them are good writers, but many of them need help changing from academic language to, to really, you know, you know <laughs> what I mean, never to popular language, like language that you'd read Never in say newspaper. something in 10 words when you can say it in 20. Yeah, right. Uh, I didn't so, say it, you did So you, you aggregate as well as assign topics well, that at board meetings you decide are appropriate for your for that mission. Give me a couple of examples of stories that you have edited. So just today I edited a piece by a psychologist actually about how political candidates don't use self-deprecating humor anymore and how they used to. Uh, Ronald Reagan, you'll remember when he debated Mondale and was asked a question about his advanced age and whether he really was going to be up to being president said, um, it's not a problem, and not only that, I will not make an issue of the youth and relative, um, I think it was lack of qualifications or something of my, of my think, inexperience, yeah. that's what it was. Um, Obama's used it, Clinton used it, Bernie doesn't use it, Elizabeth Warren doesn't use it, um, Hillary Clinton tried to use it but didn't do very well Biden with it, Donald it. Trump doesn't use it at all. No, he's too... He's too delicate. I think Biden does. Biden may, so, yes, some, that's, right. that's right, that's um, right. He's sort of an old school Paul. Um, so th that's, a, that's one of the less serious pieces, but there's also a serious point to it, which is that the candidates, this is a psychologist, those who feel secure in, in themselves feel okay about being self-deprecating. The ones who are not secure yes, yes, and not self-confident don't. Yeah. Now, um, you, you said that's a, maybe a, a lighter piece than you're used to, but I think very important that author could probably easily get a, a, a job as a, someone's assistant speechwriter or advisor probably, to speechwriters yeah. with, with that kind of uh, um, speech etiquette mm -hmm. savvy. Mm -hmm. Give so, me one quick, we're, we've got one minute to go. Okay, Give so me I'll one tell other you, example. one more example. I actually handed this off to someone because I was on vacation, but the, this Trump public charge rule where they're saying you can't be an immigrant if it doesn't look yes. like you're going to be able to support yourself, yes. and this is going to keep a lot of immigrants out of the U.S. Guess what? That happened, that same rule was used to keep Jewish refugees from the Nazis out of America in the 40s. You stopped the boat? They would stop them. They uh, would the stop them from coming. Ships. They would stop them from coming, and um, many of them died as a result. So there's an historic context to that rule that's that's deadly. I've seen, uh, yeah, I've seen descriptions. My my background's Irish. I've seen descriptions of the Irish, 
when they were coming, when we were coming over by mm -hmm. the hordes, and they're identical to the descriptions of uh, later immigrants or yes. African Americans or Native Americans. We're out of time. Too bad. This I is am fun. sorry. We, I felt like we were just getting going. I want to thank you very much, Naomi Shalit, professional journalist and experienced journalist and fundraiser, for being with us on the Writer's Block. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. I want to thank you in television land as well. If you've learned something about journalism, the future of journalism, and a little bit about money raising from <laughs> Naomi Shalit, then the Writer's Block has done its job. Thanks for being with us, and I hope to see you again next week on the Writer's Block. Good night.